Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Um, is, am I too loud? No? Not Patricia. Okay. Um, we'll just begin with a, a word of prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you, Father. We do not take this for granted that we can gather together as your people, that we can gather in peace, and that we can study your word, uh, this word which is uh, thousands of years old, which uh, many brethren have fought and and, uh, lost their lives over, but who have uh, faithfully taught and handed it down from one generation to another. And now here we are, Father. We thank you for those who have gone before us. And we thank you, Father, that we are able to be educated and edified and and built up on the foundation of your word. And we pray, Father, that we will be faithful, that we will please you. And we ask now that you'll bless our study and bless our understanding. And help us, Father, to not just hear, but to hear and do. And certainly we pray for your help in acting on the instructions, the commands of how we ought to treat one another and how we ought not to treat one another. And we've heard this message uh, in a different format five years ago. I I believe, Father, we have improved in ways, but this is a very tall order to be like Jesus Christ. And so we pray for more of your Holy Spirit and help us to demonstrate our love for you by how we love one another. Thank you, Father. We ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So, brethren, what I wanted to do for the study today, and it's going to tie in a bit to the sermon that we heard today on, on how we treat one another, is I wanted us to look at the book of uh, say the book of Thessalonians, the epistles to the Thessalonians. And what I want us to do is to evaluate the congregation at Thessalonica congregationally, that that Jesus Christ, when he looks at his church, he evaluates his church congregationally. And the apostles, when they write to the church, they evaluate the church congregationally. And and I think we have uh, studied Thessalonians, or parts of it, but I don't think we've necessarily thought about Thessalonica as, as a congregation. And so I think if we just sort of take a quick run through these epistles, we'll see how Paul saw this congregation. And I just want to start, first of all, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, which is a passage that we refer to often. You know, if somebody dies in the church, guaranteed we're going to this passage. It says, I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep that you sorrow not, even as others, which have no hope. So I think, you know, if I were to read that passage and ask people, where's that scripture, everybody would know where to find it, right? And the, and the passage, and the verses that follow it. What we don't necessarily know is the context that leads up to this passage. So, so why did Paul say this? What is the context that leads up to it? So I want to cover that. And I also want us to see that 
this congregation started out like Philippi. Paul was really, really excited about this congregation. But then it ends like Corinth. He just cools off on this congregation. And that initial excitement grows cold. And I want us to to see that and understand why. Um, Paul was a very gentle leader. Very, very gentle. And he says as much in this letter. But he could also be very harsh. And this congregation, he deals with harshly. And I always thought that, you know, Paul gets harsh on two issues. One is a porneia. Anything involving sexual immorality, Paul doesn't joke. He comes down like a ton of bricks. Don't mess about. You don't know what you're doing. Do not do this in the body of God. And the other is false doctrine and and creating division from false doctrine. He doesn't mess about. Comes down like a ton of bricks. In this congregation, he he comes down on them like a ton of bricks, but it's not about porneia. And it's not about false doctrine. So there's a third thing that gets Paul like, deal with this now. And so we'll see that. So let's go to um, the beginning of the letter, the first letter, 1 Thessalonians 1. (coughs) Paul and Silvanus and Timothy unto the congregation of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a new congregation that he had started. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Paul couldn't stop thinking of these folks. He was praying about them nonstop. He was giving God thanks for them them nonstop. Verse 4, knowing brethren beloved, your election of God. So this is what really got Paul excited. And and Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they were talking to each other about the the Thessalonians and and their election. They were called by God and and they created this congregation. Verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So it wasn't just a matter of going into Thessalonica and preaching the gospel. And they, so they heard the word of God and thought, well, that makes sense. It was much more than that. He says, in addition to hearing the gospel, You saw the gospel in action because of the power that we had when we came into Thessalonica. And and you saw the Holy Spirit working and and the confidence that we had. They were going into hostile territory and they were staring down the beast. They were were looking at this this dragon that hated the, the, the people of God and they did not back down. They preached the gospel regardless of the opposition. And that's what helped the Thessalonians, those that converted, to realize, wow, these guys are not afraid of death. They are preaching the gospel no matter what and no matter who. They, this, this must be true, that they're willing to risk their lives to preach this. And if you uh, go to verse 6, 
Well, actually, before we go to verse 6, well, yeah, verse 6. And you became followers of us. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they were in Thessalonica, and they set such a powerful example that when this congregation got started, they followed their example. And they began to preach the gospel the way with the boldness that they saw Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy preach it. So you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So these were not ideal conditions to receive the word of God in. If you um, turn to Acts 17, and we're going to come back here, so hold your place. And while you're going there, I'll just read to you Matthew 10, what Christ said, Matthew 10, verse 19. But when they deliver you up, take no thought of how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. So they were, that's the instruction that they received from Christ, and no doubt Paul received from Christ. Don't, don't try to premeditate how you'll handle the opposition. The Holy Spirit will give you the words what to speak in the moment that you're facing this opposition. And that's what the Thessalonians saw, and that's what the Thessalonians followed. So today, you could imagine if we were in the Middle East today um, and, and facing the wrath of ISIS, if Paul was there, he would preach the gospel the same way. Just because you're unhappy doesn't make the gospel untrue. And so he would preach the gospel the same way. And then the folks there, let's say that they were in uh, Syria, and they saw how confidently Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were preaching this gospel. When they leave, and these are the few converts, they do the same thing. And they're facing tremendous, tremendous persecution. But the word of God is true. Uh, If we look at Acts 17, we'll see what happened here in Thessalonica. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul always went to the Jews first. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, he reasoned with them, or he debated with them, out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, And risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is the Messiah. So he was in there every week, opening up the scriptures and debating with the Jewish leaders. And telling them, it it is necessary, you don't understand the Messiah. He's probably going into Isaiah. And showing the Isaiah prophecies around the humble servant that had to come and die in order to redeem Israel. That there was a price that had to be paid for Israel's redemption. And so this is what he was arguing with them about for three weeks. And some of them believed. So this is the beginning of the congregation. That they were, there were Jewish people who were hearing this gospel message. And some of them believed. And consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. So some of the Jews believed. And then around the Jews were these, um, what did they call them? Proselytes, what's, what's the English word for this that I'm thinking? They hung around the Jews, but they were Gentiles. God-fearers. So these were the God-fearers. 
So these are Greeks that acknowledge the God of Israel, but they're not going to get circumcised, but they acknowledge that the God of Israel is true. So these are God-fearers. And much of the early church comes from these God-fearing communities where they understand the God of Israel, they're on the periphery, and they receive the gospel happily. So we have some devout Jews that believe in the gospel, and then we have these devout God-fearers, these Greeks, so they're devout, they're doing all the things, they're just not circumcised. A great multitude of them, and of the chief women, not a few. So very powerful women came into the congregation as well. And we saw that in Philippi with Lydia. But the Jews which believed not, which was the majority of Jews, moved with envy. So they didn't like the fact that Paul's preaching and Silas's preaching was so powerful that so many people converted over. They became envious. So they were moved with envy, and we know that that's how Satan moves. Took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. You can only imagine what those guys are like. And gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason. So I guess they were meeting at his house and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down have come here also, whom Jason has received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So their lives were at stake. And they had to just get them out of there. Whom coming there, so they come to Berea, went into the synagogue of the Jews. Again, his custom is always to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. But he says that these Jews were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So the Jews in Thessalonica were not noble. There was a few that converted. There was a few, but the majority just didn't care about the truth. They just wanted to defend themselves, defend their little empire, and they became very envious of Paul's effective preaching. But in Berea, these Jews were like, what? We haven't heard this before. Where in the scripture is that? Okay, come back next week. We're going to search the scriptures to see if that's actually accurate. And so they were a much nobler Jewish population in Berea than Thessalonica. So these um, Jews in Thessalonica who are not noble, who are of the baser sort, this, these are the people that the brethren, the congregation in Thessalonica, had to contend with. So they had to preach the gospel to these people, and they're very ferocious. Let's go back to First Thessalonians. So in verse 6, <clears throat> Paul says that they, they followed their example, having received the word in much affliction. So these Jews in Thessalonica were not joking around. In verse 7, he says, the, the way they received it with all of this persecution, but continued preaching, so that you were examples to all that believed in Macedonia and Achaia. So Philippi was off to, I guess it would be further west and then Achaia is all the way dealing with Corinth and Athens so this is like a really broad geography that the word or the reports 
of what the brethren in Thessalonica are doing, it's spreading to all these congregations. And so Paul preached boldly with with, uh, Silvanus and Timothy. The Thessalonians picked up their example, and then the example of the Thessalonians started to spread to all the other congregations. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Like Paul is, he cannot contain his excitement. This is absolutely amazing. It's a young congregation, and they are doing the work of God. So that we need not to speak anything. Like you guys are on fire. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. So in other words, we don't need to... to uh, try to encourage you or talk to you because the reports that are coming back to us are telling us how effective our ministry was among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. So that's uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 now continues. So, so the focus here is on Christ and understanding that he was raised from the dead and through Christ we are delivered from the wrath to come. So there, there's a wrath today and they're, they're experiencing the wrath today. That's nothing compared to the wrath to come. And so we may not escape the wrath today, but we are delivered from the wrath to come. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. So, so he heard, from, from the reports that he heard, he knows it's not in vain. But he's saying, you yourselves know that when we came to you, this really took root. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. These Christians, this early church, these early believers, they were not cowards. They didn't check the temperature to see whether or not it was okay to preach the gospel. They didn't try to read your face to see, like, if I say Jesus, will you smile at me? And if you smile, then I'll, keep, I'll say Christ and I'll continue. They just didn't care. If, if you've got a problem with the gospel, that's your problem. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. But even after we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you. So they came, they they narrowly escaped being killed in Philippi. They come to Thessalonica. They see more opposition, and they do not back down. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. So Paul, they, they really understood the, the responsibility of understanding the gospel and the burden that that put on them to preach the gospel. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. 
And we know that God identifies himself as he who tries the hearts, who searches the reins. So we, you know, Revelation 21, he says that the fearful and unbelieving will be thrown in the lake of fire first. And so they know that they, the, the, who they have to fear is God, not men. Verse 5. So God tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. So when they came into Thessalonica, they didn't try to use language that would be acceptable. They weren't politically correct. They just came in. They just escaped persecution in Philippi. They come to Thessalonica, and they just speak the word flat out, plain, plain speech. So we didn't use flattering words. Nor of men thought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. So we were bold preaching the gospel. But among you who believed, we were gentle. Even as a nurse cherishes her children. So this is the way of Paul's ministry to the brethren. It's to be really, really gentle. I was talking to Denise earlier, actually, because he's a nurse. And so there's a, there's a bedside manner that nurses have, which if you're, not, if you're not well, just the way that they engage you, you really appreciate. You feel better. Whereas somebody who has a harsh manner, when you're not well, they could just make you just despondent and feel worse, right? So, so his ministry and their ministry was like a nurse helping these people get better. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. So we would, we would do everything for you. We'll give you the shirt off our back. We'll lose our lives for you. It's not just about giving you the gospel. For remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. So what he's saying here is, they did not burden the congregation in any way at all. So they preached the gospel, say, during the day, and instructed them during the day. And then at night, they were making tents. They were figuring out how to make a living so that they would not be in any way a burden to the brethren. You are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believed. So it was very important that they set the right example for this congregation to follow. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. So this is really important that... It's not just the uh, concept of the gospel, as uh, Pastor Murray was saying today. It's the behavior of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. Our behavior has to conform to the gospel. Verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth. The word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. So it's not just the concept of the gospel. These words are life, and they actually come into the human being 
and they transform the human being. And that's what Paul is just so excited about, that this is a congregation that really, truly gets it. And he just, he, he's just thrilled. So verse 13 was that it effectually works also in you that believe. So it's not just the concept. You, you understand the concept. This is really working in you powerfully. For you, brethren, became followers of the congregations of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So these Jews were vicious. Again, think of them kind of like ISIS today, maybe not that vicious, but think of it like that. And they were just persecuting, hunting these people down, torturing them, killing them. Their own countrymen, who both killed the Lord Jesus. And, and this is the context, by the way, of uh, 4.13, when he says, I don't want you to sorrow about those who have died. This is why they've died. It's not that, oh, we have a funeral to attend, we had a heart attack. They've been hunting down uh, Christians and killing them. And then Paul wants them to understand the, the death, but we'll come to that in a bit. Um, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. Remember, they were jealous. So they had this God-fearing community around the Jews, and this community just lit up when they heard the gospel, and that made these Jews envious. So they forbade them to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. God is displeased with these people to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So he really wants to get back to Thessalonica and his heart is with them. Therefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is, so, so it sounds like there's some sort of accusation going around that, you know, these guys, they come, they start the church, and then you never see them again. And, and Paul is saying, on the contrary, our heart's desire is to get back to you. We just can't. And our heart is with you. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So, again, we talked at the feast, and uh, I think last week as well, Alex, you had asked a question about uh, future tense versus present tense. You can just see Paul's future tense perspective. He's looking at this congregation, and the whole thing on his mind is, how does he deliver this congregation to Jesus Christ on the day of his return? And that's what's driving his decision-making. It's not, it's not just what's going on in the present. It's how do I make decisions and guide you today so that you become my crown when Christ returns. That's where Paul's headed. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could no longer forbear, so they're trying to get back to Thessalonica and they can't take it anymore, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. So they're just worried that the amount of persecution they're facing, they don't want them to get discouraged. So they're going to send Timothy to really establish them. 
for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. It's just a message you don't hear in mainstream Christianity very much. You, you would think we're appointed unto health and wealth. But Paul is saying, you guys know that this is our lot. This is what we're appointed unto, this, uh, this type of affliction. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, as you know. So we were with you, and we told you this is going to happen. Now we're gone, and it's happening. Don't be discouraged. We told you this is, this is our law. This is what's going to happen. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter, having tempted you, and our labor be in vain. So Paul was just a little bit worried that, you know, this amount of persecution that they're facing, uh, early, early congregation, early church, young church, they could get discouraged. And they could check out. And then all of this labor that he had in, in setting up this congregation, it would be in vain. So he's sending Timothy to establish them. But now, when Timothy came from you unto us and brought us good news of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So a lot went into establishing this congregation. Paul couldn't get back to them. The amount of persecution that they're experiencing, he was worried that all of this would have been in vain. So he sends Timothy to establish them and Timothy comes back and says, these guys are on fire. These guys get it. They're, they're facing the, tribu- uh, the, the persecution nobly, and they are an example to others. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God? So there's just so much joy that Paul has, and Silvanus and Timothy, they're just beside themselves with joy over this congregation. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ, direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, again, to Murray's sermon today. So it's great that we love one another. He's saying increase and abound. Like, really go all out here. Don't, don't be satisfied. Like, hey, you know, we're, we're pretty good. No, no. We need to increase and abound in this. So they were good. He, Timothy came back with a great report. They have strong faith. They love one another. They're preaching the gospel. And Paul, and Paul is writing back to them saying, great. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So we have an obligation to love one another, but all men. So we we also need to have this love and uh, charity to all men. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness 
before God. So this is the objective that Paul has for the congregation. And this is the objective that we must have. As a congregation, we must establish our hearts unblameable. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we're unblameable. That if there is sin, we repent. We go to God. And and we're unblameable because the blood of Christ covers us unblameable in holiness before God. So God has a a kingdom that he's going to usher in, and he's going to use holy people to usher in that kingdom. And this is where our mind needs to be, that we're unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It's almost like Paul is obsessed. I think it's not an exaggeration to say Paul is obsessed with Jesus Christ's return. And delivering the congregations that are under his charge, delivering them to Christ on the day of his return so that we can go into the next phase. And this is his whole mindset, is get the congregations unblameable and ready for the return of Christ. So we come into chapter 4 now. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, we're begging you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received us, received of us how you ought to walk, and again to, to Murray's sermon today, you've received of us, we could say we've re- we received of Pastor Murray today how we ought to walk and to please God. So you would abound more and more. It's a, the gospel is very practical. And I think sometimes even like somebody like myself, I think I can get very conceptual with the gospel. And I can go in and look in and like, wow, look at this, look at this, and let's talk about concepts. And Paul is like where where Murray is. Guys, here's what it means in practical terms. If you're going to believe in the gospel, this is what you have to do. Like, let's just, and it's so simple, but it's profound. It's profound. There are things we don't understand really about the unseen world, the spirit world, and how it works. And we don't have to understand it. If we just obey God and do these things, we're avoiding all these traps. I was saying to my wife the other day, I was thinking about this. I think I'll try to give a sermon on this at some point. I I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're just really tired. Maybe it's the end of the day. You can hardly keep your eyes open. And something happens. And you are totally recharged. Maybe the phone rings. And it's somebody that you haven't heard from for ages. And you're like, hey, wow, are you all right? And all of a sudden, this energy, you didn't eat anything. You didn't drink anything. It's just something came to you, and you're totally energized. Some sort of good news, or maybe your favorite music comes on, or something happens, and you're energized. So I asked the question, where does energy come from? Because it certainly comes from food. We, we eat food to get, and the energy that's in the food is transferred to us, so we have energy. But food is not the only source of energy. Energy can come from ideas. Energy can come from interactions. Energy can come from observations. We can be energized by these things. The spirit world, more specifically, the demonic world, seeks energy. And what excites the demonic world? Well, conflict. 
when demons see brethren in conflict with one another, that energizes them. When demons see human beings murdering one another, made in God's image, that excites them. Lust, envy, hatred. These things energize the demonic world. So Paul could go into some sort of scientific treatise on why it's important to live a certain way so as not to empower the adversary. But he doesn't. He just says, love one another. Just love one another. And we don't really understand how profound this is because we can't see what's around us. But if we just do as he instructs us, we gain the upper hand. If we don't, if we're in conflict with one another, we'll be destroyed. We'll be overwhelmed. So think about that. What gives you energy? And are we giving energy to these spiritual individuals who are hidden from us? We can't see them, but they're individuals like all of us. And they seek energy. And they love when we're in conflict with one another. So very practically, love one another. How you ought to walk and please God, not demons, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So they gave them very specific commandments. And again, the sermon today, very specific commandments. So here, here it is now, verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So he's a lot of talk about holiness and walking in holiness. And, and this is the will of God, our sanctification. God wants to set us apart for holy use. So he's coming, and there's going to be a people that have been sanctified that he's able to use. And that's his will. And so to gain the sanctification, he says, you should abstain from porneia. And again, I'll go back to what gives you energy. When the people of God participate in porneia, that energizes the demonic world. They get excited because that is, that is worshiping the devil and it's destroying the image of God. The image of God is a man and a wife coming together and being one. What the devils want is everything but that. Man with man, uh, man with beast, anything outside of marriage, that excites them. And so we being sanctified, should abstain from porneia. And that was a problem here in Thessalonica. Um, this ancient world was very immoral. And they, they were coming out of this immoral society. A lot of, so there were Jews, but there were a lot of Gentiles that were com- converting. And they were bringing this um, lackadaisical attitude towards porneia. They were bringing that into the church. And Paul is saying, look, you've got to abstain from porneia that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. You guys have got to clean yourselves up. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And again, we can see the same thing in our society, which is a very similar corrupt society, where uh, we kind of have a casual attitude towards porneia. It's okay. It's no big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. That no man... Go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. So make sure. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. So you tamper with a man's wife. God avenges that with tremendous wrath. Don't go there. 
as we also have forewarned you and testified. So this is why Paul, when it comes to pornea, he doesn't fool around with it. Because this has to do with worshiping God or worshiping devils. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. There's that word again, holiness. He therefore that despises, so if people are not agreeing with this and they're getting upset, he therefore that despises, despises not man. You're not despising me. You're despising God, who has also given unto us his Holy Spirit. So we have his Holy Spirit. We have to know how to conduct ourselves. We're going to the sermon today. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. So he, he had to write unto them about pornea, because that was a problem in the society, and they needed to clean themselves up. But as touching brotherly love, you, don't need, that I, you need not that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren, which are in all Macedonia. So they really are loving one another right up into Macedonia. But we beg you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Like, that's amazing. So he says, you, you have no need for me to write to you about loving one another, because you're really doing it. But I'm begging you, increase in this more and more. Like, you've really got to get this right. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So there's two things going on in Thessalonica. One is immorality. So these Gentiles are bringing their immoral culture with them into the church. He's saying stop that. And the second is sloth. They're not working. So he's saying we're commanding you. Do your own business and do manual labor and get out there and work. Don't think that you can become a Christian and just sit back and philosophize. You make sure you're working, and we command you to do this. Why? That you may walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. So we don't want you now having the name of Christ and going to the welfare office, having the name of Christ and swindling, people who are not believers, and they look at you and say, wow, if that's, if that's what Christianity is about, they're just as corrupt as anybody else. You make sure that you look after yourself so that you can walk honestly towards them that are without. So it's all about the representation of Christ and the reputation of Christ. And then he says, but I would not have you be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. And we're going to see this issue around hope. So Brethren are being put to death, and some are dying naturally. And the Thessalonians, this, this young church, primarily Gentile, they're losing hope. They, they thought that they would all be alive for Christ's return. And there was a doctrine that at death, that's the end, that the soul perishes at death. So when these brethren were dying, the Thessalonians were believing, oh, wow, I guess they're out. I guess they didn't make it. They're not going to be here when Christ returns, and they've, they've, they've perished. And Paul is saying, look, I, you can't be ignorant about this. Uh, so then he goes on to, and we are very familiar with these scriptures, this passage, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, uh, the same way those which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of our Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not precede them which are asleep. They actually have a higher honor than us. They will rise and meet Christ first. And they'll receive us to Christ. 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let's go to Second Thessalonians, and we'll just spend a little time here. And, and I just want you to notice how Paul cools off on this congregation. He's very cordial. Um, he's still grateful, but something has happened. And he's not exuberant anymore. So in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 1, same three, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, unto the congregation of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it's appropriate, because that your faith grows exceedingly, and the, the charity of every one of you all toward each other abounds. So that sounds good. So their faith is growing a lot, and the love that they have for one another is abounding. But Paul's like, you know, we, we have to give thanks for you because of these things. It's that, that, that's a good report. Now, I want you to... I'm going to read chapter verse 3 again. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is appropriate, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds. I want you to, to compare that verse 3 to verse 3 in, chapter, in 1 Thessalonians 1, and tell me what's missing. What's missing? Good, so it's not ceasing. That's good. So in First Thessalonians one here, he says, "Yes, uh, we thank God always for you, brethren, as it is appropriate, because of your faith. Your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all toward each other abounds." Now in the first letter, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, the, the, your work of faith, good. There's the faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. So hope is missing. So here in, when he opens up, it's faith, love, and hope. But in the second letter, he just mentions faith and love. And he drops the hope. And yes, there's the without ceasing, and, and he does talk about the work of faith. But he drops it. There's, there's an issue now with hope, and he's going to pick it up later. But before they had the hope, 
And then he concluded the first letter saying that he didn't want them to be ignorant and that they shouldn't sorrow as those who have no hope. And now when he, a few months later when he's writing the second letter, there's an issue around hope. And so he's not commending them on their patience of hope. Verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the congregations of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So they are enduring uh, these tribulations, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they are enduring this tribulation. And Paul is telling them, yeah, Christ is coming. And when he comes, he's going to take vengeance. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Therefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we beg you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, again, that's where Paul's mind was, the return of Christ, and we're all going to be gathered unto him. And now he's begging them by this gathering that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. So people are telling them that oh, Christ is going to return tomorrow. Christ is going to return next week. And this is troubling them because they're going to be disappointed. It's like tomorrow comes and Christ didn't come. And so he's saying, look, we, and, and people are trying to say, Paul is saying this. And he's saying that we would not teach this. Why wouldn't we teach this? He says, verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin, the Antichrist, be revealed, the son of perdition. So he's saying, guys, we would never teach any such thing. Christ is not going to come tomorrow, and he's not going to come next week. There's, there's, there's an order of operations here, and, and one of the things that we're obviously missing is the Antichrist. The Antichrist has to come first before Christ comes. So don't believe anybody that's telling you that Christ is going to come tomorrow. And then you're starting to lose your, your patience and your hope. Um, <clears throat> just as a side note, there's, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, should we call the pastors pastor? Is it, you know, Pastor Adrian, Pastor Murray? Or should we just say Adrian and Murray? Brethren, you're free. Call us whatever you want. The Bible does say to honor those who labor in the word. But I do insist that when Murray gets up to preach, it's Pastor Murray. You, you need to know that that's a pastor preaching. Because we do have brethren who can preach that are not pastors. 
And you need to know, oh, this is one of the brothers that's giving a message. But he's not accountable to God or the congregation. When Murray gets up to preach, he's accountable. And he has to stand before Jesus Christ as I do and give an account for every word that we've spoken and for whether or not the congregation is holy when Christ returns. So I think it's important for you to know who's preaching to you, who's writing to you, and are they ordained in that office for that function. That's all. We're not on some sort of ego trip where, you know, call me Pastor Davis and then get down on one knee and, and, and make your request. This is nonsense. Call me Adrian. Call me Brother Adrian, whatever you like. But just know, you can say, uh, and now a message from Adrian, a pastor in Burlington. And that's important as well, that we are pastors in Burlington and Ottawa. So if I go to Kitchener and preach, I'm not responsible for the Kitchener congregation. And they need to know that. This is a visiting pastor from Burlington. He's preaching in in, in Kitchener. But when we preach here, we're responsible for this congregation. And Paul is making it very clear. He has a responsibility and accountability to the Thessalonians. So he says, don't be deceived. Then dropping down to verse 15. So they were, they were being um, disoriented by this sense that God is going to come any minute now, and then he's not coming, and their, their, their faith is being uh, tired. Verse 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So stick to what we have taught you. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us, has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. So he raises this issue of hope. So they have lost this hope. And they're not, he's just totally focused on the return of Christ and delivering the congregation when Christ returns. And they're losing their hope. And so he brings up this everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So you see what the word of God did in Thessalonica, how you've established this congregation and the fruit that it's born. Pray for us so that we can do the same thing in other cities, what you've experienced, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. In in other words, some men are wicked. So we might say to you today, as we are preaching the gospel and maybe going into hostile territory, pray for us that the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you, that you both do and will do the things which we command you. So they had two issues to clean up. One was porneia, and the other was sloth. And from this letter, it's apparent that they cleaned up the porneia. Whatever they were doing with men's wives and all of that, they stopped. And the divorce and the fornication, they stopped. But he says here, 
So he did tell them, though, you make sure that you work and don't sit around and have an honest uh, report of those outside. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. And then verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is serious. There were two issues. Clean up the pornea and don't be slothful. And now he's coming back to them and saying, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, brethren, withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. This is, this is Paul who says, we're, we're gentle. We're like a nurse. You know, we're, we're just so gentle with you. Now he can't get to them. And when he wrote to the Corinthians, they were not cleaning up the issue of pornea. And he says to the Corinthians, I'm not even there. And I already know what, what should be. The next time you guys get together, put that person out. Now, this issue is not pornea. It's sloth. There's people who are not working. And he's commanding the congregation to separate themselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. So when they were there, not only were they preaching all day and evangelizing all day, in the night they were building tents and doing whatever they had to do to earn an income so that they would not be a burden to anybody. And you saw us do that with your own eyes. So do not, don't be more righteous than God. So the Corinthians were trying to be more righteous than God by having this person committing pornea, staying in the, in the midst. And now these Thessalonians are trying to be more righteous than God by having these layabouts staying in the con. Oh, you know what? Come and eat. So what Paul is saying is, if we have people in our congregation that are not going to work, when it's time for potluck, you make sure that they don't get anything at all. You guys have a nice meal, but don't give any to those who are disorderly. This is harsh. And, and this whole kind of exuberance that Paul had over the congregation, he just cools right off. You guys better fix it. And we have this view that Christianity is this kind of loosey-goosey, mushy and squishy kind of, Christ, kind of religion. It's just so squishy to be Christian. And Paul is like, I can be squishy, but I can be squashy too. Right? He goes both ways. And he does it because his whole view is crossing the finish line. This is all about crossing the finish line when Christ returns and we have a holy congregation that God can use. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. So we weren't beggars. But wrought with labor and travail night and day. So they, they, didn't, they were not getting their eight hours of sleep. So you know, preparing sermons and working. With my, much like Murray and I, we, we, our whole ministry, we're doing off the side of our desk. But we're making tents during the day because we have to support ourselves and our family. We're not coming around to you guys saying, you know, can you, can you give us a meal? Neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, 
that we might not be chargeable to any of you. We don't owe anybody anything. Not because we don't have the authority. We, we could actually do this. We could say, this is, you know, give us your tithes. Give us your offerings. This is our right to do this. So, so we do have the right to do this. Not because we don't have the power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So this, this is a big, big deal to Paul. And it's part of becoming a holy congregation. So he presented two issues to them, pornea and sloth. And they cleaned up the pornea. But they didn't clean up the sloth. And Paul is upset. You're destroying the reputation of Jesus Christ. You need to fix this. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, not working at all. (laughs) Paul is saying, we instructed you, we thought we were clear, and now we're hearing that you have in your midst people who are not working. And they're going and you're feeding them. And they're getting into people's business. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Don't don't feed them. Make sure they feed themselves. But you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. So, so we are charitable. You know, We help people get to the feast. If people are in trouble, we'll help them. But they've got to be doing their part. It's not, uh, it's not this um, just loose, uh, sloppy agape where anything goes. No, there are standards. Widows that are widows indeed will help. Those that are in need indeed will help. But we can also say no. In fact, we can say the opposite of no. We can say, we command you to go and work. They come knocking on my door. Hey, uh, Adrian, uh, can, can I come over for dinner? No. Go get a job. That's what Paul's saying. But don't be weary in well-doing. So we still have to do well, but it's an intelligent well-doing. It's not just free-for-all. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle... Note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So Paul is saying, take action and put that person to shame. Because shame today is nothing. Shame today is nothing. Paul's whole focus is the finish line. When we cross the finish line and Christ returns, that's when we don't want to be shamed. But to be shamed today so that we can repent and fix ourselves up, so that we can be there when we cross the finish line, this is glory. So shame today can be glorious, but shame on the day of Christ's return, that is shame indeed. And that's how Paul is wired. And so here he's writing, let's say we're the Thessalonians here. He's writing to us, and he's saying, we command everybody to go and get a job and work. So what's happening here is they're being told that Christ is going to return tomorrow. And so they're saying, oh, if Christ is going to return tomorrow, then uh, we don't have anything to do. Let's just sit back and philosophize. Paul's writing to say, Paul, John, uh, Jesus is not going to return tomorrow. 
the Antichrist has to be put in place first at a minimum. So this may take a while. And you need to work. So he's saying to me as this sort of lazy person, get out and get a job. Then he's saying to the rest of you, he's commanding you that if I don't respond to his exhortation and his command to go and get get a job, you as a congregation, your responsibility, he says in verse 14, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. I, I think we've got this wrong idea of Christianity. It's supposed to be squishy and cuddly. And there are things, and I, this jumped out at me, because I know Paul doesn't mess with porneia, and he doesn't mess with doctrine and division. But what I'm seeing here is he also doesn't mess with sloth. Don't be lazy. Yet, don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him, and again to Pastor Murray's uh, message today about admonishing one another, don't count him as an, an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So that's the instruction. And he says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So I think if there was a third epistle um, to the Thessalonians, it would probably be uh, a, ha- a happier note. Because I'm, I'm, I believe that they would, with such strong language, I think that they would respond to this. But unlike the Corinthians where you know, he starts out really strong and then the second letter is better, here he starts out really, really positive over this congregation and then the second letter he gets very harsh. So I'd say congregationally, they were doing well, but he had somewhat against them. And I think this is the blind spot uh, for us as a congregation. There may be areas that we're doing well, And the areas that we do well blind us to those areas where Christ might be looking at us and saying, I have somewhat against you. So I think think this does tie very much in with the sermon today, that we don't have to be all philosophical. We can just get to the basics and, and just abound more and more in the basics and realize that it's all about the finish line. It's all about becoming a holy congregation when Christ returns so that he can actually meet us. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.